Welcome back to Howie I Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. As always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts. Um, so thank you for their support. Today on the show, we've got Tadas Labudis, CEO and founder of Prodsite. So Prodsite are a startup providing their clients with customer feedback intelligence using automated topics and sentiment analysis. But I'll let him tell you more about that. Uh, so welcome to the show, Tadas. Hey, Liam. Uh, good to be here. Thank you. I decided to start putting the word entrepreneurial in the introduction, but I'm already regretting it because it's really hard to say. And I it's think gonna... it comes from French. Well, it's about, I've just noticed on my notes, it's about to come up again. I need to, I need to think of a better word. <laughs> yeah, we always start in education. Uh, you and I pretty much did the same degree. So you went to Glasgow University or University of Glasgow. I was in Harriet Watt, but business and management, um, a fairly wide ranging general degree that I did. I don't know if you found the same thing. Yeah, you know, it was a, it was a good time uh, at Glasgow Uni. Business degree, kind of early on, I wanted to do something uh, that would be like my own venture or build something. And, you know, I didn't have any particular tendency towards, you know, like some people love biology or medicine. They kind of have this preconceived notion of what you're going to be. And I just wanted to, you know, to create some something that would be like a venture or like a machine that I could that could work and create value. And, you know, I wanted to get as broad education as possible, you know, so I could handle all those things and then the moving pieces. And I think, you know, the business course, uh, of course, it wasn't uh, designed for entrepreneurship, although there were some good modules there. It was, it gave me, you know, this broad understanding of how does the accounting and finance work and what's marketing and, you know, what's, what's you know, change management, you know, when you have people, and need to bring them on board with new strategies. A lot of it was kind of becoming or preparing to be a manager in a big corporate. Uh, but you know, I took the way, took away the best bits that I felt were useful, and you know, tried to kind of advance my interest in entrepreneurship at the same time. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I, yeah, I always felt like it's quite a hard, uh, it's actually quite a hard course to teach because. A lot of people like you are kind of maybe looking for some more entrepreneurship stuff or maybe some more access into like how running a business actually works, whereas quite a lot of the degree is maybe a, it's quite theoretical, right? So like they focus on case studies and things that happened quite a long time ago, but are still relevant to a degree, just not at the same, I don't know, just not at the same level. Yeah, exactly. I think sometimes the exercises or exams can feel a little bit trivial, Although, you know, there are kind of fundamental, you know, skills you're developing and like how you're developing your thoughts, how you're analyzing things. I think that's what's the valuable stuff. The actual specific case studies are like, what did the manager do in this situation is kind of less so. Yeah, I always uh, thought once I left uni that I would never see another SWOT analysis again because like uni were just obsessed with them. But from time to time, it crops up. So it's actually proved to not be a useless task. Yeah, funny thing, actually, I just did one at the end of this year. Uh, so I was kind of summing up our marketing positioning. And actually, I did find the exercise useful, you know, as, as corporate you can be, you know, actually, it does cover some good areas. Yeah, no, yeah well, I, I was proven wrong after all these years. You've already mentioned it, and uh, we'll touch on it a bit more. But even throughout uni, you were pretty kind of entrepreneurial for lack of a better word but you were kind of running side businesses while you were at uni you started like the TEDx speaking program at Glasgow Uni so was that just always was that just kind of natural? Um, I mean even before I came to uni I, I kind of had this habit of um, 
upgrading my life by trading things. So I uh, I was kind of buying and selling computer parts, mainly just to build a better computer for myself. You know, back in the day, you wouldn't just have a laptop. You have it like an actual tower where you can swap out graphic cards, hard drives, things like that. So I would kind of buy a component, you know, through my lunch money, whatever I managed to save. I would then sell that for profit and get myself better components. And I felt like I really enjoyed that process. It was, it was like quite empowering, like as a kid to be able to do that and just get better stuff. And then I, I kind of did similar things with, uh, with bicycles. I was, I was quite into bike trials, which is a bit of a niche sport, uh, which is kind of extreme uh, biking. So I kind of got a pretty good bike in the end uh, after trading parts. And then, you know, when I went to uni, I was like, I could probably trade something else. And I ended up opening this e-commerce store, just buying and selling uh, percussion instruments and drums and cymbals. And it wasn't like any kind of sophisticated business or anything, but allowed me to, you know, pay my rent, get my food and, and not actually have to work in the bar like a lot of students did. Nice. Um, that's a great story, actually. Um, and I forgot to touch on, so you're from Lithuania, right? So why did you choose Glasgow when you decided to go to uni? Yeah, interesting how uh, kind of serendipity works in these things. So there was a, a girl uh, from my school in Lithuania that came back and said, you know, I went to Scotland to study in a college there. I was like, oh, that's interesting. You can do that. Um, so started digging more and uh, essentially ended up creating like a short list of various different colleges uh, that that was before I even finished school. Right. So there was like, I think two years left at that time before graduation from school. And I was like, if I could get away, uh, I wouldn't have to do the Lithuanian exams, which are actually notoriously hard. Uh, and I could like study abroad and like learn a new culture and just kind of like immerse myself in this new thing and get away from my parents. That'd be awesome. So I really kind of, got myself into this thinking I, I must make this work somehow. So I started like emailing a bunch of different colleges and North Glasgow College was actually the most responsive one. And they sold me this prospectus and application form. I applied and got in. And then uh, a tiny task of convincing my girlfriend to join and go for the same adventure. Uh, we were dating for a year, uh, but she, she wanted the same thing. And, uh, and we went for it. And, you know, and two years later, after completing the the H&C business, I think it was called, we got into Glasgow Uni and kind of continued our studies from there. When you finished that course at uni, was there a temptation just to go and start your own thing straight away? You know, as, as I was at uni, I I had this e-commerce business, but we also started another thing, which was called uh, Eventred, which is basically an event aggregation and discovery platform. So let's say you have your favorite bands, you have, uh, you know, particular genres of music you like, maybe you're into metal or something. We would basically scan existing repositories of events like Ticketmaster, Skittle, and a few sites like that, aggregate that together in, in one platform, and then basically send you recommendations for events based on your location and other factors. So that was, I guess, more of a scalable tech venture that's not just like an e-commerce business, but actually had some potential. And that you know, really got me excited about the prospect, you know, can I actually grow and run this after uni? But we actually had a really hard time building a marketing strategy and and, and raising money on, on the back of this idea. That kind of brought me to the realization that actually maybe I need to work with other people first and not get ahead of myself and, and actually, you know, get some skills, work with other people um, 
learn new use cases, new problems in the world, and then maybe come back to this later. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, I went into product management, which is, I guess, as close as you can get to being an entrepreneur inside a company, uh, kind of working on a new product. Uh, so I went to Kodakan, which was uh, a kind of boutique mobile development agency in Scotland, uh, working with Skyscanner, FanDuel, a few other kind of brands like that, building their mobile apps. And because I had this interest in in entrepreneurship, the founder there, Gavin Dutch, was very kind to suggest that I join one of their internal product projects, which is basically creating a brand new work collaboration tool for uh, the deskless workforce. And I basically kind of joined that team from early on and we were developing the concepts. So it felt like I was building my own thing, but inside of this company. And then after it got acquired by FanDuel, uh, I actually, uh, the company spun off of its own thing and I became part of the founding team. So that was kind of like the next step in, in, the, in this venture. And uh, I, had, I had some good times. You know, I learned to work with the team. Uh, I kind of honed in my product management skills. And, and about three years later, I decided to, that I was ready to kind of take a plunge and start something of my own. That's pretty awesome. So like, it's, it's been a theme before on the podcast about having like kind of good mentors or good people kind of earlier in your career. And like, there is a chance that you could have got a product manager role at a company where the product was already set. You were just kind of helping tweak and make some improvements, but it was maybe a bit more kind of business as usual. And maybe you would have just got stuck there for a few years. Whereas this was obviously brand new. Here you go. Like, and you probably learned so much more and a year there than you would in 10 years somewhere else. Uh, potentially, you never know. Sometimes I do wonder, you know, if I took a more corporate path, you know, where would that let me, uh, you know, sometimes meet people. It's like I worked at Facebook, I worked at Google, all these bigger, big uh, companies that people aspire to work at. You know, I didn't have that that experience uh, and, you know, always wonder like what it would be like, but I'm pretty happy, I guess, with the, with the way things panned out right now and we'll see where it takes us. Nice. And just before we get into what you're doing just now, um, in case anyone doesn't know or, or isn't aware, um, what do you kind of think the role of a, a product manager is in a tech company? Like what, what were you trying to do? Yeah, so a product manager's job is essentially, it's a couple of different parts, is, is either create new products or improve existing products, you know, which obviously drives revenue uh, to the company. But in terms of what you do day to day is a combination of gathering requirements, understanding like what's needed in the world. Uh, that might mean, you know, reading feedback from customers, understanding, speaking to customers, gathering new information about like where do you want the product to go? Um, or in some cases, even like creating studies from scratch, investigating new opportunities in the market. Of course, looking at secondary research, uh, business trends, all those things. But then, you know, really working with the, with the makers, so engineers, uh, designers, uh, researchers, uh, marketing teams to, to kind of bring that product to life. So your job is really to coordinate and, and be an assistant to everybody in, the, in those teams to, to help them deliver this thing. And then, uh, of course, manage it throughout its life cycle as it grows. This is a really good kind of summary of it. As we have a whistle-stop tour kind of through education, moving to Scotland and your career up to that point. But let's take us back to, I mean, pretty much three years ago, right? So January 2018, I think is when, well, certainly a kind of from your profile that ProdSite 
kind of starts. So why not tell us a little bit about, well, I suppose a little bit about what the company does now, but also kind of what the inspiration was back then, and I suppose if it's changed at all. Yeah, so I think uh, we're still very much within the same vision scope, but I guess what we've managed to do is refine that further as, as we you know went to market. The the idea for ProtSight um, came to me when I was working at at Yavi, the, the startup I was talking about, uh, where we basically, I was analyzing customer feedback that was coming in through supports, reviews, and a few other channels. And I had this thirst for, for really understanding like precisely what customers wanted so I could make the best decisions. So that was like my way of, of informing what we do. And especially, you know, when you're trying to get a team of engineers uh, on board around a particular feature, like particular strategy, you know, you, you better have some evidence. And I had developed a few kind of manual processes for that, like a spreadsheet where I was tagging data and then analyzing on a regular basis. Then I worked with Airtable as, as another hacky solution. It, it felt like, you know, that was like a, an area of passion for me, like using that customer data as evidence. And I spoke to other PMs and they kind of felt the same way. And I felt like there should be a product for this. I felt like I spotted a gap in the market. So uh, then I uh, caught up with my friend who was doing a PhD in uh, information retrieval. And he talked about like natural language processing. It's what's possible to do with text. You can actually analyze it automatically. And I was like, that's great. Like you have large volumes. It's a tedious task. You have this need to learn from this data. Let's combine those two together and make something. That kind of kicked off uh, a range of different experiments where we were trying to, you know, of course, like learn whether people have this problem or like what exactly trying to do with this data, how are you currently doing it, and then building little prototypes. You know, one of them was actually creating a dashboard which visualized insights. So like what are the common questions that people are asking or suggestions they're raising? And then behind the scenes, I actually have a few interns manually look at that data, tag it, and then kind of create this output. So from the customer's perspective, it looks like it's it's magic. It's just working. But we actually had, you know, like a, a manual process behind the scenes, you know. But what that really allowed us to do is go to market quickly with this idea, actually get people to pay for it, and then uh, gauge, you know, how useful that output was. And essentially, like, what kind of analysis we should actually do, how it should work. And then that kind of went into us raising a bit of money to grow the team, get more engineers on board and build them kind of the real thing. So that took us probably about a year and a half to build the proper version and about a year and a bit of, of discovery. And, and today, I guess where we are is uh, we have built this customer feedback intelligence platform, which can connect to popular tools uh, used for support uh, review platforms, uh, survey tools, essentially becomes a hub of customer feedback. And then we run this analysis process on top. Like, what are the topics that people are talking about? Uh, how do they feel when you're talking about those things? So, you know, when they're talking about a particular feature in the product, you know, are they feeling positive? Do they have positive sentiment towards that or negative? And we can basically turn uh, like thousands or in some cases, millions of these interactions into structured data that could be visualized in real time on our on our tool nice um, and does, does that help companies because or one of the reasons it will help companies is because you can get feedback from so many different places right so trying to get 
everything in one place is quite difficult. And then you might it might skew your kind of perception of your product because you only see the re- the reviews, for example, on one one area or one website, and then actually people think the complete opposite in a different area. There's a couple of things. Of course, you know, someone raising a support ticket versus writing a review, they, they will talk about different things and those interactions will be different. Uh, what I discovered is actually different teams are owning different channels. So a support team might be very deep into their support platform. And that's what, what their purview is. Whilst a product team might be running their own surveys and that's their insight. And there's a lot of value when you bring all that data together and kind of make it accessible. So whether you're in the marketing team, the product team, your support, or even like a CEO of a company, you have the same level of access to what's actually going on with your customers. And that, you know, that, that's also a tricky thing. It's like, because there's so many different use cases for leveraging this data, um, it's, it sometimes can be hard to say, like, what is the one thing it does? So uh, I sometimes talk about like different things. So we have a company called Zanotti, which are basically... Uh, you know, so if you have like a spa or a salon and you want to run your payroll, you want to run your scheduling for staff bookings, you know, you would get their product, their suite. And they uh, have about 450 staff. It's, it's a big team, thousands and thousands of support tickets. So what they used ProtSite for was to drive self-serve support. So they found the long tail of, of all the different questions that people are asking about. I think there was like 450 different questions. Uh, ranging from like, I forgot my password to like, how do I run payroll and things like that. And then they basically created automated bots on the other end to answer those questions automatically, which means that, you know, when someone reaches out them to those questions, they can address them right away with these automations, but also kind of save time uh, of support agents who can now focus on kind of like more complex cases. So this is kind of one example of leveraging this this data analysis for kind of real benefit. Nice. And um, is the main kind of data challenge around the product, is it around kind of NLP, like analyzing all that different text? There's, yeah, definitely a few different challenges. I mean, getting data in, making sure it's clean for that analysis is, is one of the challenges we deal with. Um, you know, you do get kind of, email threads getting attached to messages where they shouldn't be or like disclosures or email signatures, all those things impact the analysis. Uh, and we have processes to deal with that, but it's kind of like almost never ending cases still coming in. Um, but uh, you're absolutely right. You know, the main challenge is like, how can you create accurate analysis from, you know, in a, in an unsupervised way as possible to create, uh, to cluster data in, in useful ways. And this is actually the subjective, there's no objective way of analyzing a data set like that. Because if you objectively analyzed, uh, you know, 1 million support tickets, probably about 30% of those tickets would be about greetings, people saying hello and goodbye. So, (laughs) you know, that's, uh, that's not useful analysis to anyone. What you want to understand is like, what are the issues? Uh, What are the common questions? Where are the patterns? And this is where we kind of combine the user's input, like giving them control over that taxonomy and the, the assistance from, from the, or the analysis process to kind of create these um, intersections or win-win scenarios where you're tracking the things you're interested in and you're like helping you find those things. 
does the product support kind of multiple languages? Like, is, is that quite an easy thing to switch on or is that something you would have to look into like down the line or? At this point, uh, we, we do have uh, certain, most of our functions uh, are multilingual. It is a challenge in itself, but at the same time, as we're starting as an early stage company, we haven't necessarily encountered that that stunts our growth. You know, there's so many companies that optimize for uh, English, and that's something we can do really well. But we also have clients that have other languages, and, and we can handle most of the processes today. And we have also a roadmap for how we could facilitate that once the time is right. And so the company started in Edinburgh, right? So did you move from Glasgow to Edinburgh, or was it just that that's where the idea kind of came up? Yeah, so Glasgow was um, where I spent my first six years in Scotland or the UK. Um, and then after I graduated, I kind of went right into work. Um, and my work was in Edinburgh, so I just moved for that. And then I spent the rest of the time there. I started a company there. And more recently, I, I relocated to London just late last year. So yeah, th- this, weird, uh, this year was a little bit weird because, uh, of course, most of it was spent in, in lockdown. Um, so I didn't, I I don't feel like I made full advantage of being in London, but that's kind of a new chapter in my life right now. Nice. And the company will always have those kind of like Scottish roots, right? But like from now it's kind of a remote, like startup, like people, you'll end up hiring people everywhere. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think the COVID uh, and lockdown situation really show that people can, work productive from home, in some cases, even more productive than maybe they would be in, in a busy office. And that kind of raises the question, like, maybe it's not that big of a shift to actually, you know, facilitate remote working. There's so many different things you can do. I think it's still a challenge to create, you know, this kind of team bonding feeling and, and, and this sense of belonging. It's even for myself, it sometimes might feel like you're working on tasks and it just kind of becomes like task crunching exercise as opposed to kind of being part of the community. So I think that's still a challenge to be solved. And I don't know what the answer for that is, but we've, we've been trying to do like regular offsites where we meet in person, grab lunch, grab dinner, grab drinks, you know, and just kind of really be together. Um, but that that's not something you need every day necessarily for every task. That's more of a like it's part of work yeah no i think so i think people will probably blend it a little bit and um, but i think if you're an early stage startup like what you guys are you can kind of mold it to whatever suits you whereas there's going to be so many big companies where they have 20 30 40 50 staff already and going fully remote is probably a lot harder whereas you guys can kind of switch it on and off as as you see fit really which is quite nice exactly you know if you look at the silicon valley uh, advice on, on this kind of stuff is, you know, they even advocate like spending like the first year of the company, like together in one house, you know, it's kind of like from the <laughs> Facebook movie. I, and I think that there is truth to that. Like it's, it's hard. You're probably not getting like paid market rate. It's probably like not the best objective job for people involved. And maybe that's what you, why you need this kind of strong sense of community and belonging to kind of bring this thing almost like as a mission um, I think we're a little bit different given that we raise money, we can actually pay people and, and there's like, it's more like a, more like a, uh, an early founding team job type of opportunity rather than really being in, in the, in the trenches fully exposed. But yeah, I, I think it's, there's still like, 
people come to work not just to get skills, not just to you know earn money, you know, to come for the community. We spend so much time working together. So how do you make that meaningful? I think that's that's definitely one of the questions for me this year. Is like how how can we make next year feel as good as it possibly can be for the team um, by balancing all these things? Yeah, no, that's that is definitely going to be the tricky bit. I think is kind of getting back to some sort of normality. Just be, like kind of before we we did this uh, last week or so, we chatted and about kind of working in a startup and the fact that for you as a founder, like working in a flat kind of lean structure. It's pretty much a necessity, right? Unless you have loads of your own cash to kind of fund it, or like you said, until you get some funding to pay people. But you kind of have to keep everything as lean and as kind of flexible as possible, which often results in you and other people doing like two or three different jobs. Is that fair? Yeah, that's very fair. I think um, unless unless you raise really large amounts of of, of venture capital you will be in a position where you need to offer benefits beyond the cash. It's not going to be objectively the best package. You know, there might be options, but then people view them different ways. You need to kind of provide a sense of ownership and belonging. And it it must feel and actually be uh, an opportunity that couldn't be replicated in a bigger company. Uh, And that might mean that you're owning, instead of working on one small feature in a big corporate, you're actually owning the entire like infrastructure or like a significant component of the product or, you know, making architecture decisions. And these things are attractive to engineers who want the challenge. And, you know, that's what we essentially offered. We have three uh, people on the team, uh, on the technical team. We have a very strong front-end engineer, senior back-end engineer, and, and a data scientist is leading the efforts there. And, you know, each of those guys is basically an expert in their own field and completely own that part of the function. And if it, when it all comes together, that's like the complete product. So yeah, I definitely think it's an unparalleled opportunity. Uh, at the same time, you know, personal needs can change from time to time, you know, when you have pressures of finances and so on. So uh, I, I don't think you can ever take your staff for granted Many of my guys get multiple offers every week from recruiters, as, as you would know. It's it's a it's a highly contested space. So I think you need to provide ownership. It needs to be flat. You're not going to be directing anybody, and and I think that's the way to go. You know, despite even if you could pay people above the market rate, you know, you'd still want to people to want to come to work and want to contribute as opposed to kind of like coerce them in any way. Yeah, there's no point in a. Like no matter how successful a tech company gets, there's no point in trying to like keep people by paying them more because there's always someone that can pay more. Exactly. Um, and people are saying about the remote work, like if everyone goes remote, then you've got to be worried that Google and Facebook are going to employ everyone that lives remotely in Scotland, for example, because now they can, whereas maybe they couldn't before. So yeah, the money thing only goes so far, within reason, obviously. And you mentioned kind of the people working in the team. So how was it from your point of view going from this is the idea, this is what we think the gap in the market is to actually having people like work for you? Like how, how did that, did that just feel normal? Was that always part of the plan? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't have built what we have today without those guys on board. It's not just about spreading the effort. It's about actually bringing expertise to do the things that I'm not an expert in. What really enabled that is being able to raise um, 
round of funding from from local Scottish angels and uh, and uh, an early stage venture capital firm, uh, TechStart. They, they've been great supporters and you know still support us to this day. So you know that kind of thing allows you to you know instead of like waiting for your bootstrapped revenue to kind of make sense to hire someone very slowly, you could fast track that process and say, you know, we believe this opportunity will deliver value in the long term. You know, let's put some money behind this idea and, and get people to actually like build it faster than we would normally would naturally. You know, and that's the basis for all tech startups. It's kind of front loading that effort and then reaping the rewards later. So yeah, so initially we got two guys on board, one data science, one engineer. They built the initial, I guess, V1 of the product, which got us some level of, of revenue and traction. And then we raised another investment round just uh, at the end of uh, 2019. And that uh, allowed us to hire a few more guys. You know, now we are building the guess, the V2 version of that with additional capabilities and integrations and things like that. So it's it's a gradual process. It's not, we haven't like hired 20 people on, on day, day one. So maybe that didn't feel like a stark Inside, you know, the team I'm working with now is similar size to the one I was working at this previous startup. So it kind of feels like I've been there, you know, I've been in this situation. Although there's additional responsibilities like, you know, running payroll, being aware of legal things and, you know, all these management issues. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's part of the fun. I definitely enjoy this kind of work. Nice. And you touched on it there and it's probably quite interesting for some people listening. Like, how did you find the kind of funding experience? And if you were to do it again, or if you're doing it again in the future, like, is there anything you've learned that you would change or recommend people? Yeah, I think with funding, it's it's very uh, contextual. So there's a few different things. It's not just about the idea. It's not necessarily all about your traction as well. And in some cases, like who you are and what you achieved before can be a big factor, especially in these early rounds. So I feel like I had a combination of different things going for this idea and, and, and kind of my profile, but I wouldn't necessarily say I had the easiest time. I think some people also understand the fundraising process very well. Now, having gone through that a few times, I now understand the dynamics better, but it almost feels like with every like stage of the round, just kind of different expectations, different dynamics put play. And like, I don't think I'm like the master of it to give advice, but for early stage founders, I guess, um, and this advice is, is kind of maybe like quite typical, but still true, is you need to, of course, have an idea for building something that is valuable and having some level of evidence behind that, just beyond your own belief, uh, actually like having customers that are willing to pay for it or like said some supporting things. And, you know, there's like levels of how much of that you need to do at different stages if you have sold a successful company before, maybe you don't need to do as much of that. People will just believe you, you have it figured out. Uh, so th- there's the balance there. Uh, essentially, how proven you are as a founder. That de-risks a lot of these investments because there are funds, you know, if you can see you built a company and sold it, they will uh, they can expect that you will do the same again. Uh, whilst if you're the first-time founder, you're not going to have that benefit of doubt, of course, which is, which is fair. The the earlier stage or the more unproven you are as a founder, the more evidence you need behind your idea. And the evidence, the best evidence is, is actually revenue. So if you can make something and sell something, and you know, the more impressive that is, the easier you're gonna have 
uh, time raising money. And essentially, that's exactly the formula I followed by, you know, trying to build this prototype, even, even getting like five customers on this thing, just to say that there's some value being exchanged. It's not just a crazy dream. That really helped. Uh, and possibly there's ways in which I could have done even, even more uh, with the resources I had. Uh, kind of try and build even less and just get more kind of commitments. Uh, but there's a, a very good book actually on the subject that helped me. It's called The Mom's Test. Essentially, the book is, is about like how do you prove out ideas uh, by you know doing validation. And it, it gives some excellent practical tips on doing that. So I definitely recommend reading that book because that would definitely help in the fundraising process. You know, that's great experience, a great kind of advice for people, especially at the early stage, because you're right, if you've proven it before, then it's probably a lot easier because you'll either know people or people will know you. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of pr- proving yourself a little bit is, is obviously going to help. We obviously can't do a podcast in 2020 and not talk about COVID. So <laughs> has it kind of been, have you noticed a big difference from like a customer point of view? Like if some customers got super busy and suddenly had loads more support requests for example um or tickets uh, and and has that been okay for you as well yeah so in terms of the user activity that really is dependent on the kind of the domain that the company's in and luckily for us many of our customers fell into the category of of benefiting from covid versus being adversely affected although there were some companies that basically COVID wiped out their entire business model, which was um, just really bad. So we tried to support them as much as we could. Um, but of course, uh, we, we lost a few customers because of these kinds of situations of budget cuts and so on. Uh, but equally, you know, there's companies out there that now are getting an increased demand for their services. A lot of them are technology companies selling some kind of digital software. So if you imagine all of a sudden needing a lot more tools to, to, to go about your day, like project management, um, you know, whatever is like specialized SaaS software and this company serving it. And there's like you know, twice the demand, of course, the support is going to take the brunt. In some cases, what, um, what happened was the demand came in, but the supply of the support agents to deal with that volume wasn't there either because they couldn't hire fast enough or, you know, basically had to cut costs and then save on that side. So agents were doing more work per, you know, per person than they were ever doing before, which meant like increased stress and increased delays in, in, in support replies. So that's, that's bad for customer experience. And in some way, we actually found that that drove new customers our side. The customer I was talking about building 450 different auto replies, you know, that initiative became very relevant to them in COVID because it, they need to tackle these volumes. So how do you do that efficiently? And by understanding your data and like putting these automations in place, you're not just throwing bodies at the problem. You're actually like finding something that's sustainable and, and could grow. So we found demand for our products. I, I, I would say like in terms of our growth stage, you know, 2020 was really like the year where we we felt like we built some of the core functionality that people were expecting before then, it was kind of bare bones as a product. So it's hard to say whether we had a good year or a bad year because we, there's nothing to compare it to uh, internally. So, you know, we've, we've more than doubled our customer base since the beginning of the year. We got five times the revenue we had at the beginning of the year. 
So I'm I'm happy for those numbers. Of course, I wanted more, but uh, we'll see where 2021 takes us. Nice. And that actually goes perfectly on to my next question, which was, what are the kind of plans for the product in 2021? Like, is it more customers, more revenue, or do you have ideas to change functionalities or is, or is it something else? Yeah, so I think with the, with the COVID and perhaps just general trends uh, in customer experience, although I started the company from the product management kind of use cases, understanding the customer, I actually found that there's many more uh, more pressing use cases around user experience and, and kind of almost like transactional, uh, like just helping customers have you know a great experience beyond just building features. And what it means is as ProtSight, we, we can't just stay as an analytics tool that's like nice to, to kind of log into and see interesting insights. It has to be more proactive. So what we're trying to do is build on top of our existing platform and see how can we proactively uh, alert people of different anomalies in their data, different issues arising, doing it with more accuracy, and also kind of facilitating various different workflows, for example, like can we use sentiment analysis to prioritize which tickets need to be addressed first? So instead of the agents grabbing the, the top one, they could be grabbing the one that's, you know, the user uh, that's most unhappy with the experience and, you know, alleviate that sooner than later. So that kind of stuff is on our mind. Nice. That'd be really cool. It'll be really good to see, like if we did another show, like in eight, nine months to see like the comparison to this year, because obviously you said there's not much to compare, but it sounds great. And do you think does more customers mean more people on the team? Or do you quite like the fact that it is quite lean? Um, so we're definitely gearing up to raise our next round. And unfortunately the way growth works is it is a bit tranched. So, you kind of like raise a bit of money and then you build to a certain point, achieve your milestones. And then that enables you to go to the next stage almost. And then based on that traction, you can convince the next set of investors, which are typically not the same investors you had. So, you know, if you're going from pre-seed to seed, it will be different people uh, in most cases. And that means, you know, getting them on board, uh, getting them excited about the vision, proving, you know, what you achieved, and then with that influx of cash, of course, you would deploy that to hire, you know, an expanded team. Um, so we, we have this on the cards for us next year at some point. Uh, where exactly that's going to line, I'm unsure, but that's definitely, that definitely, you know, once we go through that stage, it would probably triple our team at that time. Nice. That'd be really exciting as well. All right, cool. Well, well, thank you so much for joining. It's been good to chat and, and get this done. It'd be cool to get you back on and see where the team is uh, in 2021 and just uh, to keep an eye on everything that, that ProtSight are doing. Yeah, thank you. I uh, really enjoyed this conversation. It was, yeah, it's interesting uh, to chat. And yeah, let's definitely stay in touch and uh, see where things take us. <laughs>